1: which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem then rose up the heads of the fathers houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the levites everyone whose spirit god had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the lord that is in Jerusalem and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver with gold with goods with beasts and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own time. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvai, Reham, and Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2172, the sons of Sheftiah, three hundred and seventy. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God, to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their times.
0: Good morning, see you on a hill, how are we? Good, thanks for being with us on this chilly Melbourne morning. So good, you made the right decision this morning. To come to church. Uh, we're thankful for that. If you are new or visiting, uh, my name is Nick. It'd be a great chance to meet with you out in the foyer before you head off. Uh, but again, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, today, we do kick off this brand new series, and we kick it off in Ezra 1 and 2. You might have picked up that it is a long Bible reading. We kind of lost our Bible reader there for a second. Uh, but we are going to zoom through the first two chapters, uh, and we're going to find that These books that you might not be very familiar with, Ezra and Nehemiah, well, we know in the Bible that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. And it is going to be profitable for even us today, some two and a half thousand years after these events took place. Uh, So we're going to get into it. Let me pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your Word that it is breathed out by you. You made us, you know what we need to hear And you know what uh, we need to know about you. So Lord, make this profitable to us. Help us be equipped for what you have for us in our lives because of what you did in the lives of these, uh, your people, some two and a half thousand years ago. Bless us, be with us, we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, until recently, these uh, inconspicuous books in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, were believed to be and held together as one book. That's how they are in the Jewish Bible. And today we're going to start with Ezra. Ezra is more than just a cute, modern baby name. Uh, It is a name that goes back to this book in the Bible, a hugely significant moment in the history of God's people. And if you are here and you call yourself a Christian, these are events that took place as part of your history. It is our history for people who are trusting in God today of what He did in, his, in the lives of His people some two and a half thousand years ago. So we're going to take 14 weeks to learn, to glean, to see what God did in their lives and through this people to see and be inspired and empowered for what He might do through our lives today. That we might be equipped to rebuild. I don't know how much you know about building, but the extent of my knowledge of building comes from me watching the block. Does anybody here watch the block? Uh, My wife Jules loves the block and I love my wife, and so I also watch the block. And there's a few things that are just a given on the block. The season hasn't even started yet, but we know for sure that the very first episode is going to show us a block of apartments or a block of houses that are dilapidated, they are derelict, they're antiquated, they're run down, they're ugly, and on the very last episode of the season, those same apartments or houses are going to look beautiful. They're going to be well put together, and they're going to net millions and millions of dollars as they look super schmick, and we love that property redemption arc, don't we, in, in the modern world. It all started with changing rooms and then backyard blitz and then it became the block. But I also know that that property redemption arc is not going to happen by accident. One of the ways I've heard the block described before that every episode is really just an hour-long advertisement. And since I've heard that, I can't unsee it. And so as you're watching, you'll notice that the contestants put down their A2 milk as they uh, finish the day and all the high pages, uh, helpers that are with them put their Ryobi tools down and they head over to the McCafe truck and they get a, a latte from the McCafe truck and then they in their Ford Ranger, and while they're in their Ford Ranger, they pull out the phone to talk to their other partner contestant who's been really well looked after by the good customer service team at Beaumont Tiles, uh, and they are providing with them, them with some, some vouchers to use, and as they're t- sorting out the, the tiles, uh, the other partner is going over to Mitre 10 where the, the really good kind of customer service team is going to look after them at, at Mitre 10, and they're going to pay for everything with their Corp credit card. And our church just got $5,000 for that paragraph just then. (laughs) I'm joking. But isn't that true of reality TV? That it's not actually reality. It is curated. It is produced. It's a narrative that is being set up by the invisible hand of the producers in the background. Well, Ezra and Nehemiah is the block, the biblical edition. Because in Ezra and Nehemiah... We have this story of the rebuilding of the temple, the walls around Jerusalem, but even more than that, the the reforming of God's people. And He's taking them from being kind of broken and in exile and, and scattered to try to make something beautiful out of them. But it doesn't happen by accident, there is the invisible hand of God Almighty in the background. Setting out a narrative for us that we can pick this up two and a half thousand years later and see the faithfulness of God. See the beauty of what God is doing. See the character of the God that it is that we worship. And we get this story that displays his power and assures us or, or ensures the result. And so today we're not going to find ourselves on the building site just yet, but in the planning stage and the preparation And we read at the very beginning of Ezra chapter 1 that it is in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And so that places us at 539 BC. And that is a very significant time in the history of God's people because just 47 years prior, after centuries of of sending prophets to tell God's people, hey, judgment is coming. Repent. Believe. Trust in me. Turn back. God sent that judgment. And the superpower of the day Babylon came and took God's people out of Jerusalem and took them captive back to Babylon. And so God's people were exiled in the the powerhouse Babylon of the day. And now some whole generation or two will have only ever known the streets and the fields of Babylon. But the promises of God remain true. The presence of God still points and and calls out from Jerusalem, which is the the promised city, the promised land that God's people are meant to be in. And so this is a story of returning and rebuilding that city. And it's a fitting story for us because as a local church, along with the, the wider church around the world, we are living in a cultural moment that requires rebuilding. You know, today, is the very first day in about 25 months that there are no COVID restrictions upon our Sunday ministry. We finally got here. It's a great day. Lockdowns and and social distancing have obviously caused distance from church community. We've had the disruption of physical gatherings on again, off again, on again, off again. It's hampered our rhythm and our momentum we've probably had new habits replace some of our old habits personally new commitments replace old commitments some people have moved away other people have joined us as a church leader you know in my inbox i get like every single week invites to another webinar another one-day conference uh, another course something else to consider the state of the church right now and what we should be thinking about as we rebuild Sometimes we can overapply the Old Testament to our current context. But what we're going to see over the next 14 weeks is just one example of God doing exactly this, regathering His people and rebuilding their identity. And so today we're going to see just the beginning. It is a bit of an introductory sermon or message into the start of this series. And we're going to talk about three things. And the first is the foundation for any rebuild. We're going to talk about the faithfulness of God. So, if you do have your Bibles in screen form or on paper, let's read the first four verses of Ezra chapter 1. It says In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house if it were not written in Holy Scripture for us. Because here we have a pagan king, Cyrus of Persia, the leader of the most powerful empire in all of the world, the one who had just conquered the prior most powerful leader or empire in all of the world. We have him making a proclamation that this little itty-bitty group of God's people, the Jews, well actually, they need to be Released. They need to be more than released, just sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And more than that, he says that actually he and his people, well, actually, we should, we should pay for it. We, we should kind of contribute as much as we can to making this happen. And now notice in the detail in the text what it said. It said that something is actually going on behind this proclamation that Cyrus is making, It says that it was all happening that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And to fulfill his own word, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to make this proclamation. And so, on the surface, this is a a powerful proclamation by the world's most powerful man. And yet behind it, there is the, the producer at work. There is an almighty, powerful God who is shaping him and and moving things so that his purpose, his story, might be told. God was being faithful to his promises. And specifically, we told the promises that he was faithful to were were written in the book of Jeremiah. They were written before even this whole exile took place. At a church I used to go to, they used to uh, quote this verse... Out of context every single time. And you might have seen it at Kurong on a coffee cup or something. Out of context every single time. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And everyone said, yes and amen. Today we get the actual context of that verse. Because it is in Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. God spoke through Jeremiah, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And so here comes this foreign leader who really is just a pawn in the hands of God Almighty to bring his people back to his place, to display his faithfulness to this promise through Jeremiah. Now, there are a few certainties in life. You are going to suffer. You are going to pay taxes. There are going to be roadworks on the Monash. And God is going to be faithful to his promises. In fact, God's own self-description, the very first time he gets to to tell us a little bit more about himself in in Exodus. He says, he is a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness faithfulness. It is the center of who God is. And so the first thing we we glean from this story of, of Ezra and Ezra and Nehemiah is that the God that we worship is this faithful. The God that we worship never forgets when he puts down a promise. Never forgets when he says something so that he might always be faithful to his word. And just as he was to them, he will be forever faithful to us. He will be forever faithful to you. And you can know this. Not because God is bringing us, like them, back to some kind of physical destination, but because God has brought us to himself in Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in in the New Testament that uh, Jesus, having come, lived, died, and risen again, he is the yes and amen of all of God's promises. That is that all of God's promises in the Old Testament, all of them that, that pointed forward to this coming day where our, our sin would be put away, where we would be given a new heart, we would finally dwell with God and be in His presence, where nothing would, would hang over us anymore, our distance from God wouldn't hinder us. What well, was in the coming of Jesus? That all those promises were stamped, done, approved, fulfilled. God showed His faithfulness to us. And He says uh, in the book of Romans, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so think about what God has done for you already. See, the message of the gospel is not that you're a decent person in need of a life coach, it's that you're a dead person in need of a savior. And God saw your deadness God knew your hard-heartedness. God knew that you had turned from him and run the other way and you filled your life with, with all these other sorts of distractions and things and loves and desires. And God sent his son for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his son for you so that you would be won back, so that your heart would be made new, that you would go from being dead to being alive in him. And if God, this is what Paul's saying, if God has done that for you, why would he ever give up on you? He is never going to forget about you because he gave his precious son for you. And so God's faithfulness to us is locked in. God's faithfulness to us is certain. It is assured because he's done all that needs to be done. And he's given us his precious son so that we would know him. And so sometimes, yes, we will doubt. Yet when we doubt, we can remind ourselves, hey, Jesus has come for us. Jesus has been given for us. Sometimes we will fear, and we can tell ourselves in fear, Jesus has come. Sometimes we will be tempted away from our heavenly reward to to something in in the here and now. And we can remind ourselves, no, Jesus has been given for me. And if Jesus has been given for you, God's going to be faithful to you in this moment. God is going to be faithful to you through everything thick or thin. And so he's never going to become jaded by you. God is never going to get over you. He's never going to turn away from you. God is always and only ever going to be faithful to you and to his people in Christ. And so this edict goes out. But it's not just Cyrus who needs to be stirred into action here. Notice... As we read the text on, let's talk about the stirring of the Spirit, because we read that indeed the Lord did stir Cyrus's spirit, but there's more to the story. In verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the Father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You see, one of the problems with being taken over by the world's superpower of the day and exiled to their big metropolis, their big epicenter of power, is that you end up in a really prosperous city. And Jeremiah had called the faithful Jews, the, 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 the church of the day, the people of God of the day, to seek the welfare of the city that they were in. Seek the good, even when they're in exile. Seek the good of where God takes you. Well, perhaps it was something that they did too well because the book of Daniel highlights that the exiles, that, you know, they weren't all exactly in chains, they weren't enslaved, they had a good amount of freedom and autonomy. Uh, even just this week, our very own Michael Theophilus led some of our City on a Hill preachers through a bit of a, a, a rewind back into the day, the cultural context of the time, and we actually have uh, now records of what life was like for the Jews in Babylon. and include a lot of receipts for purchases that were made and all sorts of things, and you get the picture that there's a Comfortable life that these guys had carved out for themselves here in Babylon. It was prosperous. It was buzzing. And 50 years after having started living in Babylon, it meant that there were one or two generations of people who who didn't know anything else. And so they'd become comfortable. They'd kind of fell into the groove in the seat of the couch there in, in Babylon and just gotten used to what life will be like in this foreign city which was now home. It started as the judgment of God, you're going to be exiled. And I'm sure decades after decades, some of these people will have started to think, well, this is, this is the gift of God. And so God had to stir their spirit. He had to put the desire, the yearning back into their hearts to want to be where he was, to want to go and, and see the promises fulfilled, the identity fully formed again. And the reality is that actually the same is true for for all of us. We might need what the Israelites needed back then, that after a a disrupted, scattered few years, we've likely developed new rhythms, we've fallen out of old habits, we've grown uh, distant from the discipline we once had. And in doing so, it's entirely possible that our hearts have also just fallen into the, the groove and the couch of a new way of life, of a new rhythm, new comforts. So maybe for whatever reason, our hearts have settled for something that they never used to settle for. Maybe our minds are justifying what it never used to justify. Our rhythms are dictated by values and priorities that we never used to hold. Maybe like these Israelites, some of us are questioning, returning to prior patterns of discipleship. Why should we commute into church? Why get involved in another community again? New relationships again? The mess that it is to make yourself known and know others. Why give? Why commit? Why serve? We can become comfortable. And there is a very fine line between getting comfortable and giving in to compromise. And so as we come out of the pandemic, we hope, we need God's help to want Him We need God's help to yearn for Him. We need God's help to have hearts that seek out His people. To see ourselves as as servants again. Actively involved in, in rebuilding. Actively involved in rebuilding His kingdom. And it's another moment for us to lean on what the Bible consistently brings up. Because this is a pattern... You know, it's not unique to this time in exile, it's not unique to, to our day today, it is is a pattern. We sing it sometimes, prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to lead the God I love. We are prone to, to wander by nature, to, to turn from God, to grow cold or hard-hearted. And so throughout the Scriptures, there's this narrative of, of Well, we actually need God's help to want God. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. See, the reality is that none of us have hearts that in of ourselves we can turn. No, God has that ability to turn hearts. He can turn stir our spirit, put in us a a longing and a yearning for more of Him, a heart that that wants to pray that we would pray more, a heart that wants to learn, uh, yearn for for others to come and join us, to, to seek the lost and see them come home to Him. And so we need God's Spirit to stir our spirit. And that is going to be a big lesson over the next 14 weeks throughout this series. One of the ways that God might stir our spirit is by showing us the significance of what He is doing. And we get a glimpse of that in this narrative here in Ezra chapter 1, uh, as the Israelites are readying themselves to go to Babylon, as they were were doing so, we're told in, in verse 6 and 7, And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of the gods. And so the author wants us to know that as the, uh, the, the, the Persians in Babylon, just as Cyrus wrote would happen, ended up happening. That They actually kind of collated resources. They got together things and they, they sent them off with the Jews back to Jerusalem. And as he writes that, he wants us to remember something significant in the Bible. This might pique your your memory. If you were with us last year, we walked through uh, the book of Exodus uh, for some 20 weeks or so. uh, And we saw the redemption of God's people out of Egypt. There they really were. Enslaved in chains in Egypt. And you might know the story, we brought it up last week over Easter, the great Passover narrative of God uh, winning his people out from under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh by judging Pharaoh. Pharaoh finally resents after, uh, relents after that Passover moment. He lets the people go. But as they let the people go, the Egyptians kind of are voluntarily plundered because they give all their, their gold and jewelry, they give all their, their, their items of, of great worth to the Israelites as they're walking on out of Egypt. And so what's happening in this moment here in Ezra, of walking out of Babylon back to Jerusalem, God's trying to help the people see and help us see in, in reflecting on this time that, hey, this was a second act of the Exodus. This is a really significant moment in what was happening here that defining story of the Old Testament, it's actually happening again. We should be reminded of God's redemption of His people. And so God wants them to know just how significant what is happening is. Now moving house, like on the ground, moving house, finding resources, maybe they have to get a new donkey, going on a trek, and then setting up home in what was for them a a now foreign land land. Although it was the spiritual heartland of the people, it was the foreign land for them. It will have been, I'm sure, a very logistically tricky thing. It would have felt very ordinary and very very mundane and taxing. And life can feel like that. Peter told us just in the series we finished in in 1 Peter that that we are exiles in our life today. That we await heading to our promised land, at God's home in heaven. And so life, in the meantime, it it can look very mundane Not everything we do has the spiritual significance attached to it in an an obvious way. But we should remind ourselves of what we are doing here. What we're a part of in helping one another hold fast to Jesus. Keep the faith. What we're doing in, in encouraging one another, in building one another up. God wants us to know that it's significant. Maybe you heard some of the, the baptism testimonies. Had a great video, but last week, we, or the weeks prior, we, we talked about the, the baptizees and their stories in coming to Jesus. I was struck by one of them uh, with our mate Rob. Rob became a Christian because of YouTube, essentially. And, and Rob had a, a great fear of death that was kind of ministered to by the Lord through the lyrics of Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. And then to find a, a church community he reached out to his former maths teacher, Bryn, on LinkedIn and had sent, sent messages back and forth and is now part of our church. Now, what an incredible story of God taking these things that we just take for granted in our lives, YouTube, Coolio, I don't know if you take him for granted, <laughs> LinkedIn, and God used them to take someone who was far from him to him and now to us as part of our church family. You know, right now we are worshiping the God Almighty. We are joining in with angels and archangels in heaven. We are joining in with the, the global church who this Sunday morning get up and sing to Jesus. We're, we're joining in with the historical church, this great cloud of witnesses that watch over what we're, we're doing uh, in our lives and our testimony for Jesus. And we are doing it in a place where on Saturdays there is a Zumba class in here. And during the week there is table tennis God takes what is ordinary. God takes what is mundane, he uses, and He uses it to, to do something significant and profound. The most important things that God is doing in your life don't make it to Instagram. God takes the ordinary. He takes the mundane, and He makes something beautiful out of it. He takes our lives. He takes our decisions. He takes, he takes our thoughts. He takes those, those really nervous saying, you know, we might speak something to our neighbor and we don't know how it went and we don't know what they thought about it and yet it resonates in their mind when they put their head down on the pillow at night or he he takes our our ethical dilemmas at work and our decision to stand for integrity and the right thing and we just thought we were just doing the right thing, touch with our conscience. Someone else sees that. Someone else is moved by that conviction God takes these ordinary decisions, these ordinary things, and He does something significant with them. All that we do is significant. Not because we're doing it, but because God attaches it to what He has done for us in Jesus and uses these mundane things to point people to Jesus. And that leads us to our brief final point. Let's talk about the participation of the people because we had that moment where the the Bible reading kind of faded off. And in that fade, the reason it was a fade was because there's lots of numbers and there's lots of names and there's lots of detail. And we'll dive into this point more fully in chapter three next week because we see it there in in a very big way. But the end of our text, as we read through these these names and these numbers of people who came back to Babylon, we're, we're kind of summarize there at the end. So that's why we, we brought the Bible reading back up, that the whole number of people who, who came were 42,360. And then verse 68 says of chapter 2, some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now, the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. See, we started this message and we started this chapter seeing God's faithfulness to his promises. But God's promises being fulfilled are very practical, so practical that God's people had to participate. And we're going to see this in the, the weeks ahead, that God's people in this rebuilding work, that God was building their identity back again. God was going to build his city back again. Well, it took the people giving. It took the people serving. It took the people speaking. It took the people traveling and working And so significant was their contribution. So significant was what God did through them is that that we have all these numbers and names written in the Bible. Their sacrifice, their service is is being talked about in a random community center on the other side of the world two and a half thousand years later. So let me end on an encouragement that God's faithfulness, as sure as it is, includes you being faithful to what He is calling you to do. God has wrapped up in this beautiful interplay of His sovereignty and our responsibility that we have a part to play that is significant, that is meaningful and that God will take and use those things that we might be talking about it together around the campfires in heaven, what it was that we did with the lives that God gave us for Him. So your service for Jesus You're giving toward the work of Jesus. You're inviting others to come and hear about Jesus. You're speaking to neighbours and colleagues and friends and family about Jesus. All of it is what this rebuilding work looks like. All of it is going to be the cause that God takes and uses to bring people around those campfires in heaven. All of it is going to be taken together to to echo out to to, to God's glory and add more to that glory and the story and the narrative of God's great work in heaven. So let us press in to these realities in these 14 weeks. God is working in history to show His faithfulness. We're going to see that again and again and again over the next few months. And it is another moment that shows us who God will be for us in our lives. God will be faithful. God will be true to His Word. You will never be left hanging when you obey Him and when you stick with Him. So we're going to talk about that more and more. And we can trust that the faithfulness of God is going to be at work in our own day and that God wants to use you. And He wants you to participate, to use your gifts, to use your prayers, to use your service, to use your sacrifice, to rebuild our church, to grow the scope of the kingdom in our time and in our place. And so if you are a Christian, you are a builder. You are a rebuilder. But let's get our series started today by asking God to come and stir our spirit. Come and put in our hearts a desire to be that a desire to do what He's calling us to do, a desire to press in and and lean on His faithfulness and pray big prayers that we haven't prayed before because we're intimidated that they won't be answered. God wants us to press into Him that we might have hearts that want Him more and be stirred toward Him. And so I'm going to do that now. Let me pray. God Almighty, we thank You so much for Your faithfulness. God, You have been faithful since you created this world, since humanity turned from you, Lord, you have never turned from humanity. Lord, we thank you that you have come to us in your son, Jesus, that your faithfulness is is capitalized, is shouted out into the world through what you've done for us in Jesus. We thank you for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. Lord, we pray as we see Jesus, as we reflect off the back of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, would you stir in our hearts, stir in our spirit a desire to want you more, a desire to long for you, a desire to yearn for you, a desire to have open hands that want to be used by you. And so Lord, come and do something great in us over these next few months, over these 14 weeks. Come and take these books that we perhaps have ignored Prior to this. And come and do something great. Come and have a a watershed season in the life of our church, a watershed season in the life of our uh, our walks with you, that we might be uh, shaped to love you more, to press into you more actively and proactively, and to join together in our community here to where we are, to rebuild. And so help us together to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. Apart from you, we can do nothing, not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, build it in vain. Lord, we need you. And so come and move in our midst by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church,